there. You're listening to episode 146 of the Love It Album podcast, proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. My name is Morris. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, this month I was supposed to be doing an interview and unfortunately that has had to be deferred to 2022, I think, but these things happen. So I've been left scrambling and thinking, what am I going to do to put in its place? It's got to be something that I can have a few thoughts on and put it together quickly. So what I've gone and done is I've gone and put together an episode which no one has asked for. Of course, mind you, no one asks for any of these episodes. Last year, I recorded an episode with a few of my colleagues in the Pantheon network of podcasts to ask them what their favorite live albums were. But I never went and revealed any of mine. So what I'm doing this time around is I'm going to speak about a few of my favorite live albums. I mean, there are tons and I can already tell you that one that should be at the very top of the list will not be discussed because we already did that a couple of months ago. That's Chris Wilson live at the Continental. But I've got quite a number of favorite live albums. So I've gone and selected a few of them and I'll discuss them for about 10-15 minutes each. Won't bore you terribly long. Hear a few music clips, decide whether you like them. Maybe you should go out and chase these or maybe you'll want to write back to me and say, hey, that's a great one. I've loved that all my life. Here are my thoughts. Or you might say your taste sucks. Who knows? I'm up for any of it. So Joe will now give you the contact details if you want to write or socialize or any of that sort of thing. And then I'll be back straight after that to talk with you about about some of my favorite live albums. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 146. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music-related discussion. Welcome back to episode 146 of Love That Album. As I said before the break, I'm going to be devoting this show to discussing for a few minutes each, so short form. I will be talking about three live albums that I have rated highly over my lifetime. I've gone and mentioned some other live album favorites over the course of the last 10 years or so while doing this show, but more as an aside. I've never really gone and devoted whole shows to a particular live album. But this is going to be a show just completely devoted to a few of my favorite live albums and see what you think of these selections. So my first nominated album is the Pat Metheny group record Travels from 1982. background first. In the early 80s, I was getting into jazz fusion via players like Al Dimiola and John McLaughlin, both together and in their separate projects. When you're of a certain age and male, I'm guessing, listening to guitar players perform a million notes a minute is impressive. And that's a lot of what jazz fusion seemed to me was about. It really didn't matter if it was rock or metal or whatever style of music you liked. Lots of notes in a short period of time meant the musician had mad skills. The ability to compose memorable melodies was a long way down the list of admired skills for some of us music fans. It certainly was for me back at the time. In 1984, I discovered Pat Metheny via my friend Rani's record collection. He had the final studio release from the Pat Metheny group on ECM Records called First Circle. That album had come out that same year, 1984. He told me if I liked Fusion, I'd be a fan of Pat and the group. This was like nothing 
everything else in the fusion world to my ears. This was really an ensemble where Lyle May's piano and Pedro Aznar's wordless vocals was as important as Pat's range of guitar sounds. I'd never heard jazz fusion you could hum, and this was melodically memorable and very hummable. At least some of it was. Of course, there were tunes like the title track, First Circle, that had these crazy time signatures, and there's a clapping part in this. And it's this time signature of 22 over 8. I've tried clapping it out. It works. What really drew me in, though, were these tunes that were very complex, but didn't sound complex. It was a trick, you see. As an aside, I've been watching some videos on YouTube from a music professor called Dr. Guy Skolnick, who goes into explanations for a bunch of Matheny tunes, breaking them down melodically, harmonically, and rhythmically. I don't pretend that I understand a lot of what he says, and yet it's not completely inaccessible to me. The other thing is that it helps me appreciate the beauty of Pat and Lyle May's compositional style rather than detracting from it by knowing more about it. So look up Dr. Guy Skolnick on YouTube. Absolutely fascinating fellow. So anyway, once I'd become hooked on First Circle, Rani and I went to see the Pat Metheny group at the Melbourne Concert Hall. I think it was 1984, 1985 which is his first tour here. For anyone who's familiar with the opening cut on the first Circle album called Forward March, this was a bizarre opening to the concert we went to. Every band member entered the concert hall from the audience doors, each playing an instrument that was not their own. And yes, it sounded like the Portsmouth Symphonia. But the beauty was that these gents showed that they had a sense of humor and were not afraid to look dorky before getting behind their regular instruments and playing a tune called Yolanda You Learn and showing their real skills. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that my mantra is song is king and it seems that this is the same mantra for the Pat Metheny group. And that tune, Yolanda, you'll learn, as a lot of others will show that that holds true. After that concert, I went to find other Pat Metheny records. Despite the various records over the ECM period having some lineup changes, I could detect a difference in individual musicians' styles, particularly for me, the drumming of Paul Wertico and Danny Gottlieb. Pat and Lyle must have known stylistically what they wanted to be the sound of the group. And without trying to sound dismissive of the individuality of each performer's own style, there is a uniformity to the sound of the Pat Metheny group albums. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The use of wordless vocals between Nana Vasconcellos and Pedro Aznar is probably meant to be similar. Pat obviously has a vision and got these gents to fulfill that sound. For whatever reason, there have been some jazz critics who have been unkind to his compositional approach to music and have said some really horrible things about the Pat Metheny group work, though some have been a little bit more appreciative of his other collaborations. This music is sonically lifting and exciting at some points and reflective on others. It's never been dull to my ears, so to hell with those critics, and I'm being polite from what I really want to say. Let's talk about the Travels album itself. It was recorded across various gigs around the United States in 1982, not a one-show album, so hence the title Travels, I guess. Uh, while there's an improvisational aspect to the music, this is composed jazz, so there will be some similarity to the the studio versions of these tunes. But there's also an intensity that only comes from a live recording, and this is a really great set of live recordings. ECM head honcho Manfred Eicher, who was the producer on probably just about every ECM album ever recorded, has always known how to set up a great sound in the studio. But this live album sounds equally as good to my ears. I'm going to be naive and presume that there's no major tampering with the music post gigs. The lineup for this live album is Pat Metheny on guitars, Lyle Mays on pianos and synths, Steve Rodby on bass, and those three are the core members of the PMG all throughout its life. Danny Gottlieb on drums, and Nana Vasconcellos, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, on percussion and wordless vocals. 
I don't know if in Matheny lore this is considered to be the classic lineup or not, but it's one I really love. For a long time, Matheny's drummer has been Antonio Sanchez, who is a jaw-droppingly great player and would probably be considered amongst some to be the best drummer he's had. But I think I prefer Gottlieb out of all of Matheny's drummers because he sounds like he understands rock as well as jazz. I'm not talking in the Billy Cobham sense of playing. I'm not really sure how to define it, but when you don't have a trained jazz vocabulary, that's the problem that you face, I guess. The music on this album is often very dreamy. To my earlier point, Pat Metheny is known to have some of the guitar heroics I mentioned before, but it was never at the cost of a great tune, and it was never what his music was about. And when you're playing on a Roland guitar synclavius synthesizer, as he was often known to do, particularly from this point in his career, it often sounded outer-worldly. Or like in an Ornette Coleman tribute I heard him do live, it sounds like two elephants fucking. else does that in the world of jazz? So there's a couple of tunes on this album that are new to the repertoire, but otherwise these tunes are from PMG albums up to and including Off Ramp, which came out in the same year, 1982. Given that Pat had Nanavas Conchellis from Brazil in the band at this stage, I'd be confident that this had a strong influence on some of Pat and Lyle's compositional style at this point. I'd say this from ignorance, but there's definitely a Brazilian flavor to some of these tunes without really being what I normally think of as Latin jazz. Have a listen to a little bit of a tune called Song for Bilbao as an example. starts with the rhythm section and I'm including Lyle on piano for this. They're playing the main theme minus the melody line. It emphasizes the groove before Pat comes in on the synclavia. I wonder if it's that instrument as much as anything that pushes the sound from becoming more identifiably Latin in flavor. So Pat comes in, plays a melody over two rounds before his impro starts. On the second round, there's a harmony going on with Pat's original melody line, which I'm guessing is him on the synclavia rather than Lyle on the synthesizer. Lyle gets a great piano solo, which he launches in with real gusto. It could have been all too easy to do the build up from gentle to frenetic, which is what some jazz soloists do but he's playing with full-on power right from the start. Like my favorite jazz solos, it's melodic and it's memorable. But then again, I've played this album hundreds of times, so that's probably why it stays in my head. The majority of the rest of the tune is Pat doing his solo thing on the synclavia. Pat tends to define what he does by his sound rather than his technique, although he's got technique coming out of the kazooie. One way I'll always pick up on his playing, even if I don't know it's a Pat Metheny tune, is via that instrument. Although his other signature instrument was the Gibson ES-175, which he played a lot in the 70s and the 80s. And he has a style of playing on that instrument, which I'll usually pick up on as well, even if I don't know it's him before the music starts playing. I'll just mention another couple of cuts for you to get an idea about why I love this collection so much. If there's one tune that Pat may be known for by people who are not Pat Metheny fans, besides This Is Not America, which he did with David Bowie for the Falcon and the Snowman movie. It's a song called Are You Going With Me?
This tune was on the off-ramp album, and I don't think it ever left the PMG set list. I'm so glad that this is done by an actual band because it has that sort of robotic feel that you imagine could have been done with programmed drums. There's a simple arpeggiated synth riff that plays over much of the song, and Steve Rodby has a rhythmically simple bass part that locks in for the whole song. It could have driven some musicians crazy, sort of like the bolero in a way, playing the same thing over and over and building up on that. But this tune is hypnotic as a slow burn over this bedrock rhythm section and builds up over a couple of key changes to a coda that just has Pat Sinclavier playing wild and frantic. His playing is all about the mood and the emotion. It's never about showing his chops, although, as I said before, there's plenty of them to burn, especially on this tune. The first Pat solo sounds like a harmonica, which is just crazy. I love the contrast of how rock steady the band is compared to the wild abandon that he shows by the end of the tune. I love the studio version, but it doesn't get as visceral as the live version eventually becomes in the last few minutes. I've heard it suggested that this tune is a musical representation of sex. You'll have to listen to the whole tune rather than just the short snippet I've played, but it makes complete sense to me. See what you think. Write in and let me know. There are so many great pieces on Travels that mix exciting full-on Latin-flavoured pieces like Straight on Red and more reflective pieces like the title track. If you want two albums to represent his ECM years, which is still my favourite period of all his work, I'd get this live album and an album called 8081. He did that with a supergroup featuring Michael Brecker, Jack DeJanette, Dewey Redman and Charlie Hayden. It's a million miles away from this PMG sound. 8081 is probably where Pat started doing collaborations outside the PMG as band leader on a regular basis. Everything up to there was just building his name with the Pat Metheny group, plus a couple of albums at the start of his ECM career as band leader. The final piece I want to mention from Travels is a 16-minute tune called As Falls With Cheetah, So Falls With Cheetah Falls. Originally, it went longer and took up a whole side on the studio album of the same name. It was credited to Patton Lyle, but none of us can did play percussion and sing on that record. The live version is with the whole band and it's a suite. It starts with Pat and his Gibson playing a tune called Going Ahead, which was originally on 8081 that I mentioned before. And that segues into Wichita. Some people might say that it's meditative music and that's great if it relaxes you in that way. However, I'd say it's more ethereal than anything and builds on its intensity maybe it's just meant to be listened to stoned i don't know if you've ever done that please write me and let me know how that worked for you uh, this tune is just a wash with sounds and it's a real headphone piece to catch everything that's going on there's instruments like cabasas and bells and fretless bass and synthesizers with a really dreamy sound it's real sound texture as much as a musical composition it's just something that washes over you. It needs to be heard late at night through a decent set of headphones played loud. Look, I hope that these snippets have encouraged you to search out anything from Pat's back catalogue, and he's done a ton of things. I'm not necessarily crazy about all of it, but he's someone who I've always respected for following his path, and more often than not, he's produced some really beautiful compositions. This live album gives added life to the studio versions of those tunes and without being radically different in arrangements. Give this a shot. Travels, 1982, Pat Metheny Group, ECM Records.
1993, I started listening to a radio show on 3RRR here that introduced me to so much great local and overseas roots-flavoured music. Blues, country, folk, rock. So much stuff from artists I hadn't heard of or had heard about but hadn't really listened to. With Billy Pinnell no longer doing his weekly radio show on commercial radio, this was the program I needed. On one episode, the host had an interview with Loudon Wainwright III. Weirdly enough, I'd never really listened to him before. I'd never even heard Dead Skunk at that there point. There you are, you got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Stinking to high heaven. I did remember him from his couple of episodes on MASH though, but that was it. The subject came up of Loudon's then-current live album, Career Moves, and a few songs were played from the album. One song that really grabbed me was called Five Years Old. Happy birthday, Martha. Happy birthday, birthday girl. Sorry I can't be there for that party, birthday girl. But pin the tail upon the donkey in that party dress. Balloons and cake, two kinds of ice cream. Guess you'll be a mess. I have no idea why, but it really, really touched me. It was a dedication from Loudon to his then five-year-old daughter, Martha, apologizing for not being able to attend her birthday party, presumably because he was out on the road. I bought the album on the strength of this song. It's not like it's a brilliant revelatory composition, but it has a nice, almost nursery rhyme type of melody to a lyric I perceived as being the heartfelt outpouring of a father to his little girl. If you've ever read anything about Laden Wainwright or seen a documentary about him, you'll know that he's had difficult relationships with his children, Martha and Rufus. Of course, you should be able to listen to the music and judge it on its own merits without being any the wiser about the creator behind it. However, when the little girl, who has five years old dedicated to her, grew up to write this song dedicated back to her father... You bloody motherfucking asshole... You really become curious as to what's going on. As it turns out, Loudon Wainwright's songwriting is heavily autobiographical or observational about members of his family. Not all of it as sweet and affectionate as five years old was, so both Martha and Rufus saw fit to respond in song and in public. Career Moves is the album I want to talk about in this section, but I followed up Career Moves with some Loudon Wainwright studio albums like Loudon Wainwright 1 and Loudon Wainwright 2, I'm Alright and Social Studies. The really, really early stuff has some good songs, but I don't think his voice had developed yet. It sounded pretty whiny to me. So you can go ahead and go to San Francisco, baby. We all know what happens there. Get your kinks and hurry on back to New York. I'll bet your money I still won't care. I won't care, I won't care. The songs on those other albums, which follow the pattern of autobiographical or observational, are still very good, but a live album is where he shines. He's meant to bounce off an audience. There are plenty of great comical songwriters, but there's a difference between someone who's a comedian and someone who's comedic. Both are going for the funny bone, but in my opinion, so don't yell at me if you disagree, the ones like Loudon Wainwright III and John Prine are funny from their observations about the absurdities of life. They don't rely on being funny. They just write songs and see what level they'll work on. Different to me from, say, Weird Al Yankovic as a parody songsmith or Eric Idle. I'm not sure where I'd put Tom Lehrer in that mix. So, on to career moves. It was recorded at New York venue The Bottom Line on January 8th, 1993, supposedly to celebrate or commiserate 25 years in the music business. Right from the opening, Loudon is performing songs about life on the road. Backstage access, who needs this? The club is a toilet when you gotta take a piss in the sink when you're out on the road. Out on the road, out on the road, you're Willie Loman and you're Tom Joe, Vladimir and Estragon, Kerouac and Genghis Khan. Out on the road, out on the road, that's where your wild oats were sowed. You start out a prince and you end up a toad, living out on the road. 
Roadode is not like the Loadout by Jackson Brown or Lodi by Credence or Turn the Page by Bob Seger slash John English. I mean, it sort of is in that it covers the difficulties of being on the road as a touring musician, but it's more about the everyday banalities of what goes on when you're not on stage, what sort of toothpaste you get in a hotel room, watching crap daytime TV shows, getting too old for constant touring due to having a bad back or a bum knee. It could be too easy for any other performer to be earnest singing these lyrics, which aren't funny on paper. But when Laudo sings this to his audience, it's hysterical. He's telling pain punters this is what i did to get on stage tonight and perform for you this may well be his substitute for lying on a psychologist's couch it's his confessional and everyone laughs he's saying willie nelson gets a bus with a vcr but i have to take a piss in the club washing basin some people have it good that's where the comedy comes from it's not earnest and it's a great piece of music if the song wasn't memorable you wouldn't have a great song that sounds obvious but for a guy whose stock in trade is words he obviously knows the the value of a great melody. He paces the show so well, he'll make you laugh, cry, or just listen to his memories of childhood. One of his popular songs is The Swimming Song. This summer I went swimming, this summer I might have drowned, but I held my breath and he kicked my feet and I moved my arms around, moved my arms around. This summer I swam in the ocean, swam in a swimming pool. Salt my wounds, clarine my eyes I'm a self-destructive fool Self-destructive fool no one else but Loudon Wainwright could make a song like this work. It's his recollections of swimming in public pools, the ocean, reservoirs. He mentions the swimming strokes he did and how he just flapped his arms around. There's no metaphor for swimming keeping him floating through life or feeling spiritually refreshed through the water or the water being fine. Often with Loudon Wainwright the third songs, it's as straightforward as it sounds. On a studio album, he did a song laughing at the fact that he was once called the new Bob Dylan. Maybe because so many songwriters writers of that period started out with an acoustic guitar and a decent vocabulary. The music media has got to fill its pages with something, right? Of course, Loudon Wainwright wasn't any type of Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan never got this confessional or observational of life's ordinary pleasures or idiocies, at least never as directly as Loudon got. Dylan would never write a song about the simple pleasures of swimming. If he has and I've missed it, email me with the details. The live version here is more enjoyable to my ears than the studio one. Loudon is playing with David Mansfield and Chaim Tannenbaum and they're all feeding off the audience who are clapping along, at least at the start. So I mentioned before that Loudon had written songs about his offspring. His ex-wife Kate McGarrickle doesn't get off the hook here. Of course, when your whole family are able to write songs, Loudon takes considerable risks on the chance that they might have their own opinions. As I mentioned before, his kids have taken their turn. In this case, his ex-sister-in-law, Anna McGarrickle, wrote a song called Kitty Come Home, but that was more for her sister than to take too much of a swipe at Loudon. On Career Moves, Loudon does a song called Unhappy Anniversary. Unhappy anniversary, I cannot count the days and nights that I have thought of you since we went separate ways. I tell my mind to forget you, but my heart disobeys. Unhappy anniversary, I cannot count the days. It starts out sounding like a celebration of being separated from Kate, commemorating that it's been a year since they've split. Later in the song, he recalls it's the 10th anniversary since they first met and how they fell in and out of love over the years. Finally, he accepts that he still can't quite rid her from his mind and shows that there's still some level of regret as to how it turned out. The complete picture may be vastly different, but I truly believe that there's something of the truth in this song. In a live context, it takes guts to be this honest with an audience. In the studio, you can record in front of a minimal number of people and then walk away from it. Here he chooses to share his life's lowlights with people who've paid for the privilege. It's a major key song that still sounds a little melancholy, even without the words. 
There's the beauty of this album. It's sort of laid out like films that came out from the 90s that got to be known as dramedies. It starts out hugely funny, then brings you moments of gentle humor and sadness and ordinariness, if that's a word, throughout the rest of the performance. It's sort of like real life. This is how Loudon Wainwright chooses to deal with his life. One final song I want to mention that has kept me laughing every time I hear it is listed on the album as T-S-M-N-W-A. Maybe so the CD listener has a surprise as to the subject matter on the first play. It's an acronym for They Spelt My Name Wrong Again. My eyes narrow I start to squint I think that's my name there in print Tell me why do I put up with it Sinatra would have a shit It's a sentiment I have a lot of empathy for, unfortunately. What seems like a simple song about how he finds his albums compartmentalized incorrectly at Tower Records and the banner outside the clubs he plays in often spelling his name incorrectly. It's absurd. Other folk musicians sing about politics or human rights. Laudo sings about what he knows. Like the song Rodode that I mentioned earlier, he has fun at his own expense comparing his lot as a mid-tier working musician to big-name artists who would never put up with this. He mentions that Frank Sinatra and Luciano Pavarotti wouldn't take that shit, but the lot of a working minstrel is different to the big stars. So overall, this is a live album I return to a lot. It has between song banter, much of it self-deprecating and very, very funny. People know coming to Aladdin Wainwright the third show what they're going to get. I got to see him twice on a tour in the early 90s. He did here with Richard Thompson. The show was called Loud and Rich, more self-deprecating humor. On the surface, it seems like they wouldn't necessarily be a musically compatible fit, but both tell great stories and both can be funny in a very dark way. Loudon's sets were like hearing career moves in in front of me with many different songs from the album. I'm super glad that it was my introduction to his work and it's still the album of his I play the most. If you haven't heard this one, search Career Moves Out. You'll learn more about his life than maybe you wanted to, but that's who he is. Ignoring the groping, hoping you might come across with a tip and sympathize with her She's getting her masters, supporting her mom Amidst the confusion, she remains cool and calm She knows exits in case of a fire or bomb She knows all the words to the 23rd Psalm She handles her tray with panache and aplomb Her brother's a Quaker My original choice for the final selection was the album I first thought of when I came upon the idea to do this episode. That record was the all-star lineup for the Andrew Durant Memorial Concert. Way back in 2012, I had a conversation with Star's frontman Mick Peeling about that very album, amongst other things, but still thought it might be a good idea for me to articulate here just why I love that record so much. But I've decided I might leave that for another day. I then thought about the album by Melbourne bluesman The Paramount Trio with the great title of Live. It's a cracking album, but I think I'll save that for a time when I can get drummer Ken Farmer on the show to talk about it. So if anyone out there is in contact with Ken, just forewarn him that I'm going to be contacting him sometime. Finally, I hit upon an artist who is iconic in Australian music. Back in July 2013, I was joined by my friend Darren Lutchner to list our favourite Paul Kelly songs, rather than nominate a single album to chew over. It may have been lazy on our parts, but we had fun anyway. PK has had a few live albums along the way. There may be more, but among those are Going Your Way, the live album that he did with Neil Finn, where they covered the most popular songs from each other's songbooks, the A to Z recordings. Over the years, he's returned several times to this concept where he and his nephew, Dan Kelly, play some shows and cover 100 songs from his songbook in alphabetical order over four nights. The beauty of this is it gives him scope to pick many songs not normally given an airing. The whole box set is eight CDs and while great, is admittedly not something I pull out too often. 
The final live album that I'm aware of is Live at the Continental and the Esplanade. This is a mail-order CD. It was recorded mostly at the Conti with a few songs from the Perth Esplanade Hotel, not the previously sacred Melbourne venue. This put a new spin on older songs, plus a few contemporary ones for the time with his band of the day. Some great renditions on this one, particularly the slowed down, bluesed up version of Dumb Things. However, these are not the live albums that I put in the killer record category. That privilege goes to his live album, Live May 1992, another really great live album name. Think I'm out early, never had much money. Then when he got laid off, he really hit the skits. He started up his drinking, then they started fighting. He took it pretty badly, well, she took both the kids. She said, I'm not standing by To watch you slowly die So watch me walking Out the door I dedicate this segment to my friend Dave McLemore, who worships this record. From the mid-80s to 1991, Paul and his band The Messengers, previously The Coloured Girls, had been a terrific live band and had released five great albums, including a collection of odds and sods. The Messengers were always a real band, not just PK's backup players. As much as I love his ensembles going forward, I think no one has breathed as much life into his songs as that band. Guitarist Steve Connolly was a songwriter's guitarist and played with so much grace and taste. When they split, Paul Kelly was playing without a backup band for the first time in years, so I imagine it was pretty nerve-wracking for him to go out on tour by himself, especially considering the band was so beloved. Could the songs that he'd written with a great band behind him work with just a guitar, his voice, and a little harmonica? They sounded incredible. These songs weren't being deprived of anything by not having a band arrangement. They often sound vulnerable, scary. While I don't necessarily think that Paul Kelly's guitar playing sounds like Billy Bragg, they're something in the sound of this album that's comparable to early Bragg records, like talking with a tax man about poetry, or maybe Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, or even his own pre-Messengers album Post. But as raw and stark as Post gets, even that album doesn't feature Paul completely by himself. Live May 1992 is still relatively early in his career, although by virtue of it coming at a band breakup, it was a very important point. He continued to make some great albums going forward, and if I'm honest, some that didn't really appeal to me as much. He's been so incredibly prolific as a songwriter that it's inevitable not everything is going to work, but that could be subjectivity on my part, I don't know. The point I want to make about this live album is it works as much as a retrospective of his work with the Coloured Girls slash Messengers. Given he's recorded so much since then, a modern day set list wouldn't be as top heavy with this material. So it's great that this exists both with his hits and deep cuts. It's possibly not a starting point for people outside of Australia who don't know his work, but when you've heard the studio versions, look into this and become immersed. It was recorded at a show in Perth at the Regal Theatre on May the 10th, 1992, and in Melbourne at the Athenaeum Theatre on May the 17th, 1992. This is a show that I attended, so I'm very excited in particular to have this album in my list. You attend a Paul Kelly show for how the songs are going to draw you in. He's not a showman. The songs make him charismatic. He really is someone who doesn't do a whole lot of audience rapport and isn't necessarily the most chatty of interview subjects, so there's nearly no between song banter on this album. The songs really do the selling. Paul Kelly was quoted in an interview as saying his songs cover the six big subjects in life. Sex, death, love, family, friends, and cricket. Sadly, none of his cricket songs made it onto this live album. Only Bradman and one David Gower had been written to this point, but he's recorded more since this album came out. Pretty much everything else is covered though, and some often combined in the one song. The opening song on the album was one he didn't perform with The Messengers and gave away later to Renee Geyer, but it sets the tone perfectly for this stage of his musical life. It's called Foggy Highway. I'm on a foggy highway I'm on a lonely road
It's a song about not knowing where you're headed in life. You can't see the road ahead of you. I presume this is evoking his feelings about no longer having his band with him and the biographies state that they were very close. That chord structure combined with a little reverb makes it sound musically disconcerting, which perfectly reflects what he must have been feeling about going alone. The stripped back versions of these songs often bring out more of their inherent emotion than the band versions sometimes did. That's nothing to do with the band recordings, they're great, but Kelly's voice becomes more personal or fragile at times in these versions. One example to me is a song called Winter Coat. Then I saw the winter coat Hanging on the wreck I thought about that winter coat Hanging on my back So you helped me try it on And it was just my side Then you bought that coat for me After haggling over the prize A tune that originally appeared on the final Messengers album, Comedy. Paul Kelly has a thing for writing songs about looking back on past relationships, sometimes with wistfulness, like this song, or When I First Met Your Ma, or Same Old Walk, or sometimes with relief, like on I Can't Believe We Were Married, all which appear on this set. For Wintercoat, the messengers treated the arrangement with beauty and sensitivity, but there's just a greater level of sadness at the memory that the coat the narrator bought with his lover that he's no longer with. Kelly plays what sounds to my ears like a Gibson. I was at the show, but I can't say I remember exactly what he was playing, but the audio is there. There's just something so damn sad about the presentation of this solo version of the song. Then there's the songs that exude lust, a topic which I think is Paul Kelly's favourite. Two of his greatest aren't here, Tease Me, which came out a few years later, and Your Little Sister is a Big Girl Now, also from the comedy album. Our houses were shambles, our love conspiracy. Your hammer's always down my pants before our guests could leave. They didn't like our drugs, our children or our dogs. The way we made it up each day And now the kids have grown We talk on the phone And one of them is sick or needs some money Our words are dry, so measured and polite I can't believe we were Even on a song like I Can't Believe We Were Married, there's the recollection contrasting how during their marriage, the couple couldn't keep their hands to themselves while they had guests over for dinner. But later on, they barely know what to say if they bump into each other in the street. A song that brings out lust in a subtle way, if that's possible, is Most Wanted Man. When she calls my name In a voice soft and low Then she calls it again Something inside of me goes When she starts moving her hand I'm the most wanted man in the land The band version is great, but being such a personal song, it probably works better as a solo cut. It never explicitly mentions anything sexual, but you know what's on his mind when he sings, when she calls my name in a voice soft and low, then she calls it again, something inside of me goes. When she starts moving her hand, I'm the most wanted man in the land. You know what's going on. There's even a throwaway song on this live album that ended up as a CD single B-side a few years later called I Was Hoping You'd Say That. It's pure filler, and yet even there, the hint of sex and humour makes it worth a listen. After the movie, I drove you home. We talked for a bit on your step. You said, would you like to come in for a while? I was hoping you'd say that. It sounds like it was an idea that he couldn't quite develop, but couldn't quite get rid of either. This album was a few years before the song Deeper Water, but that certainly involved four of the big topics in the one song. Sex, death, love and family. I'd have loved to have heard him be able to do it solo at this gig. Only three chords, but he makes it work. But I'm digressing from the main album at hand. There are many ways to tell a story in songs. Sometimes it's through reflection and mood, and sometimes it's through a traditional beginning, middle, end fashion. 
Two of the songs on this album do the latter. One is From Little Things, Big Things Grow, which Paul Kelly wrote with the great Kev Carmody. Gather round people, I tell you a story, an eight-year-long story, power and pride, British Lord Vesting, Vincent Lanyari, opposite men on opposite sides. I don't imagine that there's many people in Australia who don't know this song, but it tells the story of a Gurindji man, Vincent Lingyari, who led a walk-off at a cattle station in 1966 in the Northern Territory as a protest against a British corporation that paid the Indigenous employees far less than the non-Indigenous. The strike lasted for many years as the local Gurindji people demanded control of their land. It led to the Land Rights Act in the Northern Territory. In 1975, Prime Minister Gough Whitlam came and poured sand into Vincent's hands to symbolically hand back this territory to his people. The song From Little Things, Big Things Grow brought the whole issue of native title back into people's minds. The story is told simply without any abstraction or metaphor. It's simplicity right down to the four repeated chords throughout the entire song. It works in getting the message across of injustice done to the Australian indigenous population. The original version on comedy, apart from the coda, is pretty simple and just basically acoustic and harmonica laden, but it's still really worthwhile hearing him perform it in front of an audience. The other great story song in this collection is Everything's Turning to White. Late on a Friday, my husband went up to the mountains with three friends. They took provisions and bottles of bourbon to last them all through the weekend. 100 miles they drove Just to fish in a stream There's so much water So close to home It's based on the short story by Raymond Carver, So Much Water, So Close to Home, and it was later filmed here as Jindabyne. The song is told from the perspective of the wife of a man who goes fishing with his buddies for a weekend and discovers the body of a dead woman. The guys continue fishing for two days before reporting the body. Paul Kelly really gets into the head of the wife as she realizes she doesn't really know the man she married. Once again, Paul Kelly, his story, and a guitar evoke the mood absolutely perfectly here. The studio cut has a nice keyboard part from Pedro Bull, but I think stripped back, it just works absolutely perfectly. I bought this CD the week it came out, and it was also released on VHS for a time. It was on YouTube for a while, but it looks like it's been taken off. I'm pretty sure that it's still on physical media. I'm confident it received a release on record if you want to find that out. For mine, it's an essential live album. It's modest. It doesn't scream out, listen to me, like many other live albums do, but it gets to the core of what made all these songs so great to begin with. Paul Kelly is still recording studio albums to this day and I think he even had his first number one album in 2017 with Life Is Fine. That's not actually bad for someone who's been recording albums since the early 80s. A number one album in this era doesn't actually mean what it used to but at least he's still creating new music all the time and that there are people who actually want to hear it. That's a triumph in my way of thinking. They stood there above her all thinking the same thoughts at the same time There's so much water So close to home So there you have it, three live albums that I adore. Please write in and let me know your thoughts about any of these or any of your own favourite live albums. Always love to get some feedback and hear what other people think. All right, so that leaves me with giving you some details about what's going to happen with episode 147 of Love That Album. Actually, it's going to be episode 147 and 148 of Love That Album because I'm going to break this one up in two. I've already recorded it and it's going to be quite a long one. So I thought I'd split it up in two because some people don't know how to find the stop button or the pause button. They like to have their podcast play all in one hit and it must be short. This is going to be lengthy. So what is happening? 
Next month, which will be July 2021, it will be 10 years since I started this podcast. It's been quite a trip and I think 10 years is worth celebrating. I'm not necessarily saying that this is the greatest podcast on the face of the planet. It's not, but 10 years is something that's very special to me and I thought it was worth celebrating. So what did I do? I went and asked a number of my favorite podcasting partners from the last 10 years to have a discussion with me about what a favorite album of theirs is from the last 10 years. So basically something that was recorded or released over the lifespan of this podcast. I had some great conversations with these marvelous people and they were only supposed to be rather short conversations. Like I said to them, look, you know, reveal a couple of your favorite albums and we'll talk about 10, 15 minutes. And the conversations just went for considerably longer in most cases, but that's fine because I'm always up for a good conversation and I hope that you are too. And that's primarily why I'm splitting this up into two episodes over July of 2021. So 10 years, happy birthday to me, happy birthday to Love That Album. And I just want to say thanks to anyone who's stuck it out for a good chunk of these 10 years. If you've listened to every episode, you need therapy. Um, I know I certainly do. <laughs> but seriously, if you've been listening to a lot of these episodes, I'm really, really grateful. It's just an opportunity for me to mouth off about music that I love with people who also love music. It's been very exciting. It's just been a huge part of my life to do this podcast and talk about music. I'm rambling on. I better finish the show. So until next month, please look after each other. Please look after yourselves. Be nice to each other. Get yourself vaccinated. Don't go spreading nasty vitriol over the internet. Really, who wants it? Who needs it? Certainly I don't. All right, look after yourselves. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.